You pressed play on this podcast with the click of curiosity. It is another dimension, a dimension of mind, a dimension where nothing is sacred and everything is explainable. You're streaming into a land of both inside and outside of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the midside. Welcome to the midside where everything is mid. I'm your host, Justin Emlesneski, the hopeful romantic, and I retroactively and proactively denounce anything anyone has ever said and ever will say on this show. This will be a solo excursion into the midside. William is very busy with all of his businesses, right? We, we've heard a lot recently about his experiences launching his latest franchise up in NorCal, so he's been taking care of that, so he's unable to record. And I, of course, have to address uh, the week off we took. So last week was unexpected to take a break. But William, as I noted, is very, very busy. And then I had a busy Sunday, which is the day we usually record. And communication is interesting. Communication is interesting because it requires other people. And I say that because... Last week was the wrestling banquet, so it was the end of the year where we sort of celebrated everything that had happened throughout the season, and I was required to, of course, talk to the room, talk to the room about the girls' team and all the wrestlers on it and, and, and what they had done that season and accomplished. And afterwards, I received very little feedback, very little feedback. Only you know two or three people said anything to me, and... Yeah, it was like a room of like maybe, uh, I don't know, I'd say 75 to 100 people. I'll say 100 to make it make it sound better. But this is where it gets interesting because don't want to start getting into being second-handed here. We're saying, you know, you require other people to give you feedback, but psychological visibility is a is a real real need. But beyond that, the act of communication requires multiple people. And what I mean by that is all the things I said were things that I already knew. And I didn't need to say them to make them real to other people. Well, no, no, I needed to say them to make them real to other people if they didn't know them. But I didn't need to say them to make them real to myself. So to receive no feedback, I really, I really reflected on that. And it First of all, doing that and, you know, the event took much longer than I expected, took a lot of energy from me. And then the reflecting on that, reflecting on saying, hey, I'm making this real or, you know, this information, I'm making sure that it's heard and it's known and it's heard and known in a manner that is not only intelligible, but hopefully enjoyable to hear. And then to not receive any sort of, hey, yo, enjoyed that, or hey, thank you for saying this specific thing. And I think that's sort of the the artist's dilemma or the artist's experience is, you know, on one hand, you, you want feedback, but on the other hand, the feedback you want is just not, oh, good, 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 that was good, or, or that was bad, or I like that, I didn't like that. I think with the artist, you look to connect on another level where, where people are giving you visible feedback. And I don't mean visible as far as you can see it, but feedback that shows some sort of thought was put into it, 
right? You put thought into creating and delivering whatever your mode of communication is. And likewise, you would like to receive that back. And I think that's the feedback you're looking for. And I don't know if I would have concretized this or crystallized what I'm saying if I hadn't gone through what I did last weekend. But with that experience, I just I decided to call it. And honestly, that was the first Sunday besides our normal breaks. That was the first Sunday, first week I took off from recording, I think in the, the decade this show has been running. So I, I feel an element of guilt. For a lot of people, they might not feel that guilt because they would say, hey, I've accomplished so much over these 10 years. I've been really consistent. But to me, it's like breaking a streak. I would have a tough time if like, I was on a team that won like X number of home games in a row and then we lost one. I would feel guilty. I would almost feel apologetic. And maybe that in itself is secondhanded. That in itself is secondhand because it's saying it's about, you know, other people apologizing to other people. But it's not even that. It's like almost apologizing to myself. It's like I wasn't strong enough. Right. I got too tired. I was too in my head. I had too much going on. It's like, no, you're better than that. You're better than that. It's like when I always say, you know, just make the decision to work out, make the decision or make the decision to do whatever you need to do. It doesn't matter what what's going on. Make the decision. I made the decision to not record the episode. And here we are a week later doing a solo episode. And I don't know. I learned a lot, but I still I have these these elements of guilt, these elements of guilt. But let's let's focus on instead what I've learned throughout the past week or so, last couple of weeks, rather than the guilt I feel. Let's talk about some of those things. So the first thing I wanted to talk about was one of the things I always talk about, it's driving. Driving, and anyone who knows me, anyone who listens to the show knows there's some things that really bother me, right? People backing up into parking spots, uh, the way people just cut other people off. You know, I always talk about, Driving is the most dangerous thing we do every day, right? We, we're in these 3,000-pound killing machines, essentially, and people don't take that seriously. People people are very just sort of indifferent or almost... I can't think of the word. I want to say aggressive, but that's not the quite word, right? They're just the way they cut people off and put other people in danger. And I know it's not personal, right? I know it's not personal. And that's something Adam Carolla talks about all the time. Right? He says, you know, when you get cut off in a car, don't take it personally because they don't know you. It's not about you. It's about them. It's not about you. But I always had trouble with that because it's like, well, when they cut you off and you have to swerve or you have to slam on your brakes or you, know, you have to choose between letting them in or damaging your own car, they're very immediately doing something that affects you personally. And they may not know you on a personal level, but there's a callousness there. That was the word I was looking for. There's a callousness there that can only be personal. Now, that's where we're, we're, it's interesting with the definition of the word personal here. Maybe it can only be individuated or individualized is the better word than personal here, right? It can only be against you. And that's the thing. It's not you as a unique person, as I was saying, but you are a person and it would only be affecting you. Now, I think the reason Adam Carolla says it's not personal is when you think about they're really just seeing all other people or all other cars as one 
group and they're not distinguishing between between them. You know, kids sort of talk about this when they talk about main character syndrome. You know, sort of an offshoot of narcissism or it is narcissism. The idea that you're the main character and everybody else is just an NPC or a side character that doesn't have their own inner life, essentially. And I think people see cars very literally like that. Oh, there's no one literally inside of the car. The car is just a device that's going and it's just something to get around the obstacle. And I think the word obstacle is very important because I came to a realization recently and and the realization is based on a Reddit thread I came across in this thread. I found it on the the main page, but it's from the subreddit idiots in cars. And the title here is line cutting with the help of dot, dot, dot a car door. Now, what happens in the in this video is, and I'm not sure where this takes place. I think maybe this takes place in China. I'm not sure. Based on some of the, the replies, some of the comments that seem to be China. But what happens is this person's trying to get over and wants to get over. And a way he creates space is he open. he's trying to get over a lane to the left. And he creates space by opening his driver's side door. So the person to the left, who this is recorded on that person's dash cam has two options. One, hit the door, or two, create space, which the person would then take that little bit of space to force his way in. So, of course, he opens the door, the person lets him in, and then he drives up ahead and he cuts someone else off up ahead. Doesn't use the same technique, but there's a little more space, so he cuts him off. And I say that end part of the video because it shows the mentality of the person. It shows the mentality of the person, right? He's just in there trying to get ahead of as many people as possible. And I phrase it that way, Because that leads to my ultimate conclusion and the ultimate thing I learned here, right? So he's just trying to get ahead of as many people as possible. And when I looked at the comments, they slowly degenerated. They slowly degenerated. So they started off with, you know, people really talking about why this guy was an idiot. But then as they went on, the language started to change and I saw some things that made me realize the way people approach driving. And it's it's a way I never would have approached driving. So the first commenter that I you know I made a note I made some notes here. I took some comments out. So this may not have been the first overall comment, but this is the first commenter I want to highlight here. Said, I honestly would have let him in for creativity and I would laugh about it. But this maneuver can get people killed. Extremely dangerous move trying to save time. Now notice the two premises in here one talking about the extreme danger and getting people killed so this person understands what driving is but then also the generosity here where he says trying to save time so he's assuming this person driving the car who opened his door was just trying to save time he's giving a very benevolent interpretation of that person's actions next comment here I wouldn't have hit the car if it was the first time I saw it happen, but I will 100% do it if it even becomes a thing. Just enough to bend their door hinge a bit. I didn't see the door would be a reasonable response. A person opening their door into another traffic lane and being hit by incoming traffic would be at fault. That's not a reasonable part of the process of driving. So again, look at the premise here. That's not a reasonable part of the process of driving. And I think that that's an excellent way of looking at it. The idea that opening your door into traffic is not part of driving. 
So doing it in order to get ahead of people increases the danger illegitimately. It's an illegitimate increase in the amount of danger that you're putting yourself in and other people in. And I think that's a great way to look at it. That's not a reasonable part of the process of driving. So again, this comment is responding in a way, and you know we can debate whether hitting the, the car is right or not, although I understand the response, right? But the, the response is, well, if you're going to be unreasonable, the only way to show you how unreasonable you're being is to make you endure something, suffer something unreasonable back. And I, and I get it, I get where they're coming from. But again, these first two comments, it's dangerous, you know, you're trying to save time, that's not a reasonable part of the dri- process of driving. Think about any other way of cutting in, you can argue those are parts of the process of driving. The thing that gets sort of on the edge there before the car door thing is when people go up the breakdown lane, because the breakdown lane is created for a specific way, or for a specific reason. Or I saw a video of a freeway in Chicago once where people were going off in the opposite direction to get around a traffic jam because they didn't want to wait. All right, so these comments continue, but this is the point where they start to degenerate. Honestly, it's beautiful. I'd be mad too, but still, sometimes you just get outplayed and you have to applaud. The two key words that stick out to me here are beautiful and outplayed. As if there's beauty in putting people in danger, but also... The concept of outplayed as if this is driving is some sort of a game, as if it's a game between you and the other cars on the road. Notice how this goes back to the whole main character syndrome, right? The idea that, oh, they're obstacles. Oh, they're different units that you have to outplay, that you have to out strategize, that you have better tactics then, right? Outplayed. Next comment. I wouldn't be mad. So now we've gone from the first three comments being mad to this person not being mad, right? They wouldn't even be mad. And he says, like where I live, people suck at letting people in. I don't blame people for finding creative ways to get in the lane they want. Props to them. So now we've gone from, this isn't a reasonable part of driving to, oh, everyone else is unreasonable and I'm reasonable by doing anything I can. So let's grant them the premise that everyone else is unreasonable. All right, let's just say that for a minute. So if everyone else is unreasonable, does that give you warrants to shoot them? So let's say every store is charging an unreasonable price for gas. Does that give you a right to just steal gas or a candy bar? If every place is charging $20 for a candy bar and you want one, can you just walk in there and take it? You know, what if you find a creative way where you pretend you're from the company and you're doing spot checks on your candy bars, should we applaud that person for finding a creative way to steal a candy bar? And we're giving them props. Look how far this has degenerated. And then follow the finally, this person, the last comment uses a sarcastic tag. Looking at some of the other comments, clearly the world is full of dormant assholes waiting for other assholes to activate them. Ran the door? Yeah, that's a sane response. So they're being sarcastic saying that ramming the door is not a sane response by insinuating that everybody else is the asshole. So again, it's come full circle here, where originally the guy who was the bad guy is now the good guy. The guy who was the idiot in the car opening his door is the good guy because he figured out a way to get around these people. And I use that language, get around, because there's only one way this makes sense, and it goes back to the word outplayed. 
I realize that, you know, coupled with main character syndrome or as a result of or associated with, I don't know, we'd have to look into, you know, narcissism and the effects and all of these things. But going along with that is the idea that people see driving as a race. So if you ever remember, there was a short lived show that it didn't even have very many episodes starring Nathan Philly and after Firefly was canceled. This is a deep pull here, guys. This is a deep pull called Drive, where he and other people were put into a race where they were racing on the, the roads of America to get somewhere. I don't know if I said it already. The show was called Drive. And no one else was aware of it. So, you know, they had to deal with things like cops and other drivers and things like that. Uh, the movie Rat Race was sort of similar, but this was sort of even more like underground society you weren't supposed to know. Rat Race was sort of more obvious and, and it was a bigger event. This was like a few people and it was sort of secret. They were almost like spies. I mean, they weren't literally spies. They weren't working for any nations or companies. They were all their own individuals. Different people who were selected who were uniquely vulnerable and would give in to the manipulation and participate in this race. But they were racing, but at least they all had the same destination. What's crazy about seeing driving as a race is no one's going to the same destination. So there's no way of being like, oh, I got ahead of everybody. There's literally no way of getting ahead of everybody. The only measure then is your feeling of, oh, I got to be ahead of this person. I always have to feel like I'm going faster than other people. I always have to feel like I'm ahead of them. And what that creates is unnecessarily aggressive and callous, as I said, driving. Because no matter who the person is and no matter the context, your MO, your perspective is always going to be, oh, I need to be ahead of this person. And that's going to put you and all the other people in a significant amount of danger that they wouldn't otherwise be in. And realizing that has helped me over the past couple of weeks at least be a bit calmer on the road because I'm more willing to let people go now, realizing that their perspective is so immovable that the only two options are let them go or endanger myself further. Because I was thinking that, you know, it's, I thought I was thinking, you know, it's the old, if you stand up to the bully thing, right? They, they, they like to teach avoiding the bully, right? They like to teach avoiding the bully, which almost never works, right? The, the real way to stand up to a bully is to shake their hand or say they have no problem with the, you have no problem with them or, or scare them, right? Some sort of threat back in the extreme situation, right? They're doing it because they think they can get away with it. Well, that premise is already conceded. People are inside their vehicles. They feel like they can get away with it. One, because of they're in a 3,000-pound killing machine, essentially, so they feel safe. Right? I mean, think about it. These machines are designed that it's hard to die in them. Right? That's why car accidents, and car accidents are so tragic. But also because something I noticed in California and a little bit here in Florida, especially in California, though, there's way too many cars for police. They can't, they can't police them. There's no way they can pull over all the people breaking the law. I mean, it goes into when you see all these thefts and robberies in California as well, right? There's way too many people for the police to actually manage what's going on. And it's the same thing on the roads, too. The statistical odds of actually getting in trouble for reckless driving 
are so low now. So ultimately, you could argue this is a policing problem, which, I mean, then we're going to start talking about taxes and government appropriation of funds, right? Perhaps the government should appropriate its funds differently. But I mean, now we're in a whole different discussion of how do you properly you know, manage this kind of thing living in a society, right? Or anarchists arguing with the, the communists, all these kinds of things, right? But people just don't think they're going to get in trouble. So if you think about that, that's already been conceded. You know, it's not like a bully where you can show a bully they can't bully you, right? They shouldn't bully you. There, There's a level of you can try and, I don't want to say reason with them because you're not having a discussion, but you're showing them, which is a method of reasoning with them, right? Debate is not solely speaking. You can also show in debate, right? That's why it shouldn't be show and tell in school. It should be show and analyze, show and argue. I like show and analyze better, right? Show and discuss maybe would be better for, for little kids. With, with cards, you can't. And then if they have the perspective that they have to get ahead of you, there is nothing they're going to do. Nothing they're going to do unless they feel that their life is in danger, at which case you've probably endangered your life and you're either then driving in a giant game of chicken all the time or you are you know, letting everyone go. Now, of course, the unfortunate consequence of this is you have to perhaps accept that you're going to drive a little bit slower to places. You're going to drive a little bit slower to places because, I mean, the ability to, you know, get around traffic a little bit is, look, that's a valid ability. I'm not saying like figuring out how to get around slow people in traffic or get around sort of the traffic jams there can be. I'm not saying that's not a valid skill. That's that's something I, I used to try to do all the time. And I think, honestly, that probably um, incited these type of race drivers further because they're saying, oh, hey, this person's trying to race me. It's like, no, I'm just trying to drive to get to where I need to get to, right? And there's a lot of slow people, right? I'm not saying that's not a valid skill, but unfortunately, like I said, that's only going to incite these people. So you have to balance it as well. Right, you have to balance it, and that's something I'm noticing a lot more. Where something I'm factoring in, right? Because when when I drive, I look at the whole road, and I'm like, that car's going to do that, that car's going to do that. Now I'm starting to also factor in when I'm driving. Hey, that car, that car's going to endanger me. I need to be careful of that car. So I'm going to get around this car, and then I'm going to let that guy go, because if I don't, you know, that's going to be a problem later on. And now I did always sort of have this perspective on the highway because, you know, there are always those people on the highway go 100, 120 miles an hour. But the point I'm making is I'm seeing this on everyday roads, on side streets, right? I'm talking about roads where, you know, there's a lot of suburbia, there's department stores and fast food. That's where I'm starting to see this more, right? Where there are stoplights. That's where I'm starting to see this more, where you have to get a stoplight and slam on your brakes because of somebody, so it's not just the highways. So that was sort of the first major thing I encountered or learned. Because I don't want to say learned because I don't, I don't really learn anything from the other sort of major stories this week. Last couple of weeks. I mean, the next major thing is sort of the Elon Musk thing, right? Elon Musk purchased a certain amount of Twitter and is trying to change the rules and everything. And this... The reaction to this and this story just sort of continues my perspective and my thoughts on social media in general. 
I mean, first of all, the only people who are really, really upset about this and are worried about it are the people who are on Twitter all the time. I mean, you go out in the in, in the world and no one's really talking about this. And the only time I really saw it was when I logged on to Twitter. But that's the other thing is like I recently put both my Instagram. Actually, today, put both my Instagram and my Twitter on private. Got rid of my bio and my name and everything. Because there's really very little good that comes out of them. And, and the very little good is why I didn't delete it. Because I was thinking about it. And first of all, I do like the archive of the things I've posted. Right? Sometimes you can post some cool stuff and I didn't want to lose all that. Now, I guess conceivably I could download it. But you know, it's easier just to have that there. And then also like... I do find it a worthwhile source of information. And what I mean by that is I think it's a great marketing tool. You know, bands in specific. I really find out about a lot of concerts and merchandise that way from bands. So I didn't really want to want to give up on that. Likewise, you can watch a lot of sports highlights on it. So I think there are, are, are reasons to have reasons to have an account and to receive information. But for the average person broadcasting, I'm really not sure there's much value anymore. I, I think it's become too second-handed of a thing. Now, is it necessarily a second-handed thing? I don't know, but that's something that's something to consider. Necessarily is social media going to degenerate into a second-handed thing? Or is it the design? The design because of all the likes and the follows and all of those things. I'm not sure. Now, of course, if you ever watch The Social Dilemma, there's also the concern there with the algorithm and people becoming addicted to it and things like that. But I don't know, just the older I get and the more I've dealt with social media, the more I just think it's super important to be present in the moment. Now, I don't know, and I, I wish William was on this episode, I don't know what Elon Musk's plans are for Twitter. I don't know what he's trying to do with it. I don't know if he's trying to address some of these problems, but Musk is certainly trying to address with his work things he thinks can be improved about society, right? And, you know, we can argue all day about the morality of Musk and, you know, taking money from the government for some of his projects like Tesla. But overall, I think he's a net win and a net moral person because of the way he's trying to say, hey, these are my values and here's how to or here's how I'm going to try and actualize those values in the world and help other people actualize those values. And I think he's trying to do that with Twitter. I'm just not 100% sure of his plan. I'm sure some of you listening know more than I do, and I'm sure William knows better than I do. So it would have been nice to have William on this episode, but it's it's something to watch going forward, what, what happens. And what's really interesting is just seeing people get really mad about it. Because the people who are getting most mad about it are the people who Twitter benefits right now. Because, of course, that's going to happen. You're going to worry he's going to take that away from you. But Twitter has long been, and social media has long been. And that's, you know, again, with the algorithm, you know, talking about on the social dilemma where the feeds feed you, right? Literally, they feed your brain. It's benefited the people who are not connected to reality. And that's sort of my overall concern with it is I wish things were more connected to reality. So uh, we'll see what happens with that. But I just wanted to mention that because I'm sure somebody's gonna be like, what's your opinion on Elon Musk and Twitter? I mean, at this point, meh. Now the final thing, the final thing, I really wish I could read this article, but this article, man, 
I don't like. It's one of those articles that's super long and has all this content in it, but really, it doesn't really get into the the meat of the issue. The meat of the issue is the headline, and then there's all this mumbo jumbo underneath of it of like, oh, here's all the intelligent reporting I did, but really it obscures the issue. So this is from nymag.com uh, slash intelligencer. And the, at the top of the, the page, it says intelligencer. And the headline is Black Lives Matter secretly bought a $6 million house. And then the subheadline is allies and critics alike have questioned where the organization's money has gone. Now, again, this is one of those things where, you know, how many years ago did I say this, right? And I've said this over and over again, right? People have the same problem with the Red Cross. The number of people who get involved with these causes, not because they actually believe in the causes, but because they think it's a mean of self a means of self-aggrandizement, is probably close to 100%. And I say that because the reality is the cause is actually indistinguishable from that perspective. Because... They hold this perspective because they think the world is out to get them or out to get other people, right? This goes with the whole enjoying the naturalistic style of art. You know, the whole idea that this is system, the society, whatever, whatever you want to define as a system, nature, society, culture, you know, your individual social group, whatever you want to define as a system is against you. And everyone is beholden to the system and your individual choices and actions don't matter, it's everything is just reactionary to the system and we're all victims. Well, if you have that victim mentality and those are the people that lead groups such as Black Lives Matter, right? Having the victim mentality. I mean, think about that statement to begin with. And this was always one of the most controversial things, right? When people turn around and said all lives matter because people got mad. Well, no, we're saying Black Lives Matter because the reason we're saying is we're assuming you think that Black Lives don't matter. So think about the projection there. You're assuming, I shouldn't say projection, I should say mind reading. You're assuming that somebody else's or the general culture's mind or everyone's individual mind holds the idea that black lives don't matter. So you create a group that says black lives matter. That's coming from the victim mentality. Well, the only person who's going to hold that position is someone who has a victim mentality themselves. And people who have victim mentalities, they do one of two things. They either give up. Or they just stop trying or or they try. And if they try, right, they either stop trying or they lie, cheat, and steal. Now, somebody who put in so much effort to form a group and front a group that's nationally known, is that falling in the not trying side of things? No. It's not falling into the not trying side of things. It's falling into the lying and cheating and stealing. So it's not a surprise they would secretly buy a $6 million house because essentially it's like, hey, I'm getting what's mine. I'm getting what I deserve. I'm getting what's coming to me. And you can tell you have proof that they're doing this from the fact that they did it in secret. If what they were doing was legitimate, and you know, they tried to say things like, oh, this was a campus for like grant you know, recipients of grants for arts or some sort of project in that way, right? Or they could have built a campus, right? A campus for themselves. Oh, here's our headquarters. It's $6 million. But the fact that they did it in secret, and, you know, some of this article talks about they were wondering if they could kill the story 
and make sure the story never came out. The fact that they were doing that shows you what they're thinking. People hide things if they think they have something to hide. Well, they thought they had something to hide. Now, if they were doing things legitimately, if they were fighting for a real cause and they were saying, hey, we need infrastructure to properly and more efficiently organize and fight for this cause or fight this cause, then they wouldn't need to hide it. And they could point out and show and be very transparent about why a $6 million house was needed. Now, the first thing they would have to be transparent about is why, if you're trying to maximize your money, are you doing it in California, right? Because that's part of why this house was so expensive is it's in California. But they could be transparent about all of it, right? This is what the money is going towards. And there are charities like, I mean, the Red Cross does that, right? The Red Cross does that. And the Red Cross is a more extreme, sorry, a more rational, I was going to say extremely rational, more rational charity, right? It's a more rational charity than this because Black Lives Matter is, when you're talking about victimhood, they are at that far end of the spectrum there. So of course they're going to be much less rational. So they're going to approach it in this manner. Now, again, I'm going to pause here. I'm not saying the fight for racial equality is irrational. I'm not saying there aren't people who are victims. I'm not saying there isn't racism. I'm not saying there isn't a legitimate cause in here. But I'm saying the way it was approached, if you look at Black Lives Matter, you look at the name, you look at the history, and you look at, if anyone remembers, uh, hopefully somebody saved it out there on the internet, I'm sure they did, their original mission statement they had on their website, which was very much arguing from a Marxian communist perspective. If you look at all of those things, That is not legitimate. That is not rational. And it necessarily leads to this outcome. And this is what people say when they say communism doesn't work in practice. And this is why I say it doesn't even work in theory. Because the theory ignores the theory of the human mind. The theory of human psychology. The the theory of human ideas of philosophy. If you look at those things... Look what victimhood does to the human mind. Answer me this, listener, midsiders out there. What is the difference between the Black Lives Matter, whoever these members of, right? Because I don't even like that the headline is Black Lives Matter secretly bought a $6 million house, right? Because there are individuals who did this within the movement. Because let's, let's be honest and let's be fair here. There are people who support this movement and have donated to this movement who have good intentions and don't properly understand and fully understand the things I'm saying here. So I wouldn't even call them misguided. I might call them misinformed, but they're not the same thing as these people. As the article starts on a sunny day, late last spring, three leaders of the black lives matter movement, Patrice colors, Alicia Garza and Melina Abdullah sat on our table on the patio of an expensive house in Southern California. So I'm going to assume that those are the three women that bought this house. So those are the three people, right? Colors, Garza, and Abdullah. So I don't want to, you know, I don't even like the headline Black Lives Matter, right? Now, they're the ones who front and represent it and everything, and those are the ones who ultimately they support, right? It'd be like supporting Tesla but not supporting Elon Musk. The point I'm making, though, is even the headline is sort of collectivist in that way, right? As if a group can do that. But that's sort of 
a deeper point about our culture where we've concretized and made corporations seem like people almost, right? McDonald's did this, Coca-Cola did this, which is kind of insane in its own amount, right? Like Coca-Cola is the is the product, right? It's not even the company. The company is the company that sells the product, right? Two different things, but now we're parsing something different here. The point being, when you look at these systems, when you look at theoretically communism, when you look at theoretically socialism, and you say, oh, they, they're wonderful in theory, but they're not good in practice. No. Theoretically, you're ignoring what happens to the human mind when it believes and internalizes certain ideas. When you believe collectivism, what happens to the human mind? When you honestly believe it, when you honestly believe that the, the measure of ethics is the collective, right? So you don't measure how things affect the individual, they affect the collective. Well, what are you telling yourself about your value? Well, your value is only what you mean to the collective. Oh, well, so then in order to get anything, right, in order to get any sort of comfort and ahead at all, you have to believe that your value to the collective is greater than everyone else's. You have to convince yourself of that. So is it any wonder these leaders end up with God complexes, right? Because that's the contradiction that collectivism, that's the contradiction that communism and socialism cannot reconcile and is thus theoretically a failure. That ultimately we are all individuals. Ultimately we are all individuals and we have to take care of our own needs. And whether we are aware of that and accepting of that and I will even say loving of that for ourselves or not, we will act in that way. That's why, you know, there are people who hate themselves to the point that they're depressed because they're trying to take care of their own needs, but they feel guilty about it. Right. That's why that happens. Well, it's the same thing here, right? If you really are a true believer of collectivism, that the measure of good is how it benefits the collective and you're trying to also live your own life, the only way to do that on the extreme level is to believe of a higher sense of self-importance. Right? Oh, you have to be more important than everybody else. And that's the irony of collectivism overall that I believe it was a Harvard professor, and I really need to find that lecture again, pointed out once in a lecture that I heard at Clemson, the idea that collectivism actually and leads to more envy than anyone else because you're living an individual life and I'm ad-libbing a little here and I'm adding a little bit to what he's saying, but you're living an individual life, but all the distribution is collective. So you're always looking to make sure you have as much as everybody else, because when you're measuring on a collective level, you're looking at how everyone has everything relative to everyone else. You're not saying, Hey, Get the life you want to have. And that's what this story, you know, Black Lives Matter secretly bought a $6 million house, stands as evidence of. It's another example of why communism, why socialism, why collectivism fail on a theoretical level. And that anyone who says to you, oh, it sounds good on paper, but it fails theoretically, is conceding their premises. Because you're saying, oh, collectivism sounds good collectivism sounds good but it doesn't for this reason because there will always be 
a power structure. This is also why, you know, I'm not an anarchist, right? There will always be a power structure. The question is just what is the fairest way to create that power structure? What is the most just way to create that power structure when we keep in mind the concepts of individualism and natural rights? What is the best way to maximize individualism and natural rights and, you know, by implication, maximize safety, right? Because in order to live as an individual, in order to exercise your natural rights, you have to be safe, right? What is the the best way of doing that? Now we can have a discussion. But if we're conceding in America, right, the country that's supposed to be found on natural rights, that we say communism, socialism, collectivism sounds good on paper, but fails in practice, well, now you're trying to create a standard that's illegitimate for humans to live towards. And that's what this story represents. All right, final thing I want to talk about is a review here. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because it's really not worth spending a super a lot of time on, right? Uh, I saw Sonic the Hedgehog 2. And if you've been listening to the show for a while, you know that I really enjoyed the first Sonic the Hedgehog movie. I didn't expect it to be much, right? I expected it to be a sort of shallow cash grab designed for the kids in order to create a new franchise. But the movie actually had, you know, integrity to it. And I mean integrity in the sense of it was an integrated work of art that had a theme and built around that theme and it was well executed. And it was enjoyable for that reason. It was one of the better video game movies and it was one of the better kids movies to come out in a while. So I was really excited for Sonic the Hedgehog 2. How were they going to introduce Tails? And, you know, was it worthwhile, as the trailer showed, introducing Knuckles so quickly? And, you know, would Jim Carrey's execution continue to be as strong as it was? The way, the way they had an actor such as Jim Carrey play a character such as Robotnik, they had it work with the mythology. It worked. Now the problem is the second movie is exactly what I was afraid the first movie would be. And there, if you go on Rotten Tomatoes, there was a reviewer, I don't know who it was, who said something to the same effect. This movie was disintegrated, it was surface level, and it was a, a cash grab, right down to the post credit scene, which they didn't even try to have some sort of plot moving forward. They just had two random U.S. military people be like, oh, and by the way... Sh- Project Shadow is happening, and they showed Shadow the Hedgehog. So presumably the third movie that happens will have Shadow the Hedgehog in it. But they didn't even try to have it fit logically or anything. It was just like, oh, now we tease Shadow. I mean, say what you will about the MCU. They actually have some sort of a flow, right? There's some craft to it. There's there's some level of ability to it. But the level of ability was not here in the Sonic the Hedgehog movie. And Sonic the Hedgehog 2. And then... To make matters worse, they did the whole typical, you know, remember the first one was very similar to Man of Steel. Well, they sort of continued that a little bit and they transitioned it more into Uncle Ben than they did Pa Kent. And what I mean by that, there was still, you know, Sonic's still trying to become a hero. He's still trying to find, you know, when he should use his powers or not. And he has a conversation with uh, James Marsden, I forget the name of the, the character. Captain Donut or something. 
that that was the nickname Sonic gave him, but I don't remember the nickname exactly. That's I mean that's how much donut pants. I don't know. That's how I, much I've sort of jettisoned this from my mind. But they're they're fishing on a lake and they're having the Uncle Ben conversation, and they went with the you know illegitimate interpretation of with great power comes great responsibility. And what I mean by that is people take with great power comes great responsibility to mean with, towards other people, but really it just means that when you have more power. Your, effect, your actions have greater consequences, so you need to be more responsible with your actions. So if you're stronger, you can't go around punching people or punching walls without thinking about what the consequences would be. That's not greater responsibility to help other people. It's just a greater responsibility to think through your actions more and treat them with more seriousness. Well, here, James Marsden was telling Sonic... You know, you can take care of yourself, but growing up isn't about being responsible to yourself. It's about being responsible to other people. And, you know, this is obviously altruism, but it also made me think, I think a lot of people are confusing being a parent with being an adult, because I think a lot of people just jump into being a parent right away before they're an adult or as they're becoming an adult. And they, they confuse the difference between the two. Because, yeah, when you become a parent, you're certainly responsible for other people. But that is a responsibility you took on as a choice. And I think that's the thing a lot of people miss. And I think it's especially something they miss when they critique Rand for saying, oh, Rand had no children in her books. It's an interesting point. Thematically, it's an interesting point. Um, motif wise, you're talking about her motifs. But. You know, does it critique the philosophy? No, because that's a responsibility you're taking on in the same sense that when you're in a romantic relationship with somebody, you take that on. I mean, you can, when you teach, you take that on. When you coach, you take that on, right? That's a responsibility I've taken on as a coach. I'm responsible for other people. You know, am I 100% responsible? No, but you're not 100% responsible for your kids the more they grow up too, right? When you have a pet, you're responsible for your pet. That's something you willingly take on. But the idea that as you grow up, you necessarily are responsible for other people, right? I think that that's people confusing being a parent and an adult. And I think that was, I wish it was fleshed out more in the Sonic movie, but it wasn't. But I think the movie really made me realize that, especially as the two main human characters took that responsibility on for Sonic and they chose it. And that was sort of what made them heroic in the first movie is they chose that responsibility. But in the second movie, they're trying to teach Sonic this illegitimate perspective, which sort of undermines their heroism. And they just sort of become here, are the goofy adult characters. Oh, so ultimately I would give this movie the worst possible rating. Just no, do not see Sonic the Hedgehog two. This concludes your journey into the midside. I'm Justin Emblesneski reminding you that if things get tough, take a step back and witness the farce.
If you're still listening for a tag right now, what are you doing? This is a solo episode. You know there's going to be no banter at the end here. Press stop. No, I'm serious. Press stop right now.